Our sermon text for this morning is Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6, the sermon is entitled, The Lord Pronounces Judgment, Part 3. Let's prepare our hearts now to hear the Word of God. For man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This Word is a treasure. It is nourishment for our souls. Listen now to the Word of God. Flee for safety, O people of Benjamin, from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa and raise a signal on Beth. Hakarim, for disaster looms out of the north and great destruction. The lovely and delicately bred I will destroy, the daughter of Zion. Shepherds with their flocks shall come against her. They shall pitch their tents around her. They shall pasture each in his place. Prepare war against her. Arise and let us attack at noon. Woe to us, for the day declines, for the shadows of evening lengthen. Arise, and let us attack by night and destroy her palaces. For thus, says the Lord of hosts, cut down her trees, cast up a siege mound against Jerusalem. This is the city that must be punished. There is nothing but oppression within her. As a well keeps its water fresh, so she keeps fresh her evil. Violence and destruction are heard within her. Sickness and wounds are ever before me. Be warned, O Jerusalem, lest I turn from you in disgust, lest I make you a desolation, an uninhabited land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall glean thoroughly as a vine the remnant of Israel, like a grape gatherer, pass your hand again over its branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Therefore, I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. Pour it out upon the children in the street and upon the gatherings of young men also. Both husband and wife shall be taken, the elderly and the very aged. Their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, Everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. 
I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. As for my law, they have rejected it. What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba or sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will lay before this people stumbling blocks against which they shall stumble, fathers and sons together, neighbor and friend shall perish. Thus says the Lord, behold, a people is coming from the north country. A great nation is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. They lay hold on bow and javelin. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring sea. They ride on horses, set in array as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Zion. We have heard the report of it. Our hands fall helpless. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain as of a woman in labor. Go not out into the field, nor walk on the road, for the enemy has a sword. Terror is on every side. O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentation, for suddenly the the destroyer will come upon us. I have made you a tester of metals among my people, that you may know and test their ways. They are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They are bronze and iron. All of them act corruptly. The bellows flow, or pardon me, blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on, for the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver they are called, for the Lord has rejected them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we've just read, you test your people by your word. You use your word like a refiner's fire to test the genuineness of our faith. And so we pray this morning that you would grant that work among us, your people, be at work among, our, among us, we pray. Be at work in our hearts by your Spirit and your Word that we might have ears to hear and eyes to see, that we might be sensitive to your instruction, that we might be corrected, reproved for our sin. For we know that you are a Father who disciplines the children that you love. And if we're left without discipline, then we are illegitimate children and not the sons of our Heavenly Father. And so we do pray that you would grant, Father, that we would hear your word this morning, and that we would flee to the mercy that you have provided for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Inflame our hearts with love and devotion for Him, we pray, that we might not depart from the ancient ways, from the good way, but that we might remain faithful walking in it. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. 
Well, beloved, this morning we continue our new series through Jeremiah. In the past few weeks, we have covered the first two parts of a longer three-part section that runs from chapter 4 and verse 5 to chapter 6 and verse 30. And in this section, the Lord delivers a word of judgment, as we've seen, against Judah through three prophetic visions. The first appears in chapter 4, verses 5 through 31, as the Lord describes in vivid detail the sounding of a trumpet blast of alarm and the subsequent flight of the inhabitants of Judah, of His covenant people, to their fortified cities in the hopes of finding refuge from the Babylonian invasion. But those refuges soon turn into prisons as the Babylonian army conducts siege warfare to starve the people out. And that's what we see in the second vision in chapter 5 as the Lord commands Jeremiah, as we saw last week, to to run to and fro throughout the besieged city in search of just one person who does justice. But after conducting his search, all Jeremiah can find is wickedness, which the Lord confirms. And thus Jeremiah vindicates the Lord's judgment against Jerusalem. Eventually, of course, the Babylonian siege has its intended effect, which leads to the third and final vision in chapter 6, which is our text for this morning. In this vision, the Lord describes yet another trumpet blast of alarm, but this time the call is not to retreat to Jerusalem, but to flee from Jerusalem, though tragically there's nowhere for the people to go. In this series of visions, we see an example of what the Lord meant when he called Jeremiah back in chapter 1, telling them that he had set him over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow. Judah is one of those kingdoms uh, that the Lord will destroy and overthrow by his word. And so in the overall flow of Jeremiah's prophecy, we've moved from the Lord's identification of Judah's fundamental problem in chapter 2, which of course was her lack of love for him, her spiritual adultery, her idolatry, to his proposed solution in chapter 3, which of course was reconciliation with him through the grace of genuine repentance, to a foretelling of where all this is ultimately headed in chapters 4 through 6, which is of course the execution of his judgment against Judah by way of the Babylonian invasion. And so as we look at chapter 6 this morning, we'll divide our text into three sections. The first, verses 1 through 15, where we see the Lord warns against sin. The Lord warns against sin. The second, verses 16 through 26, we see the Lord calls to repentance. And then the third, verses 27 through 30, we see the Lord tests His people. The Lord tests His people. So let's start there in that first section, verses 1 through 15, where we see the Lord warns against sin. Look again at verse 1. The text says, Flee for safety, O people of Benjamin, from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa and raise a signal on Beth Hakarim, for disaster looms out of the north and great destruction. Chapter 6 begins with a call to flee For safety, it's directed toward the people of Benjamin, which is interesting. The people of Benjamin, their allotment of land was just north of Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem was one of the closest fortified cities to which the people of Benjamin could flee for safety. And so as the people hear Jeremiah calling for the people of Benjamin to flee for safety, flee for safety, O people of Benjamin, they would have expected the, the next words out of his mouth to be, to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, not from Jerusalem. But that's exactly what Jeremiah says. Now, one can imagine the utter shock of Jeremiah's hearers as he preaches this message. He further intensifies the shock of his message by calling upon a trumpet to be blown in Tekoa and a signal to be raised in Beth Hakarim. Tekoa was a fortified city 10 miles south of Jerusalem. It sat on a high ridge that was surrounded on three sides by deep canyons. That ridge was about 2,100 feet in elevation. And no one knows where Beth Hakarim was, but it's likely that it was a village near Tekoa, perhaps like Bethany was to Jerusalem. And so if the trumpet is being blown and the standard is being raised in and around Tekoa, because as Jeremiah says, disaster looms out of the north and great destruction the disaster to which he's referring is actually the fall of Jerusalem itself. This was the worst case scenario for the people of Judah. If the people of Benjamin aren't fleeing to Jerusalem, but they're fleeing to Tekoa, Jerusalem has fallen. Look at verses 2 through 5. The text says, The lovely and delicately bred I will destroy. The daughter of Zion. Shepherds with their flocks shall come against her. They shall pitch their tents around her. They shall pasture each in his place. Prepare war against her. Arise and let us attack at noon. Woe to us, for the day declines, for the shadows of evening lengthen. Arise and let us attack by night and destroy her palaces. The Lord now refers to Jerusalem, the royal city, the city of David, as the lovely and delicately bred, the daughter of Zion. And thus he highlights the way that he so graciously raised her up, giving her strength and beauty for hundreds of years. But though he's been so gracious to her, though he's loved her so well, he now finds himself in the position of being about to destroy her. He describes her destruction saying, shepherds with their flocks shall come against her. The point here is that the Babylonian army, which is made up of the armies of other smaller nations that the Babylonians have already conquered along with the Babylonians, they will camp around her. Like a flock of sheep, they will will strengthen themselves off Judah's own land in the interest of destroying her. And don't miss that, beloved. In this, we see how sin is essentially parasitic. Evil is essentially parasitic. Sin gains strength by destroying its host. Sin plays a zero-sum game, in other words. As the great Puritan theologian John Owen once said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. 
There is no other option. The Lord then describes the way the Babylonians, unlike His own people, will have a singular focus as they plot the destruction of Jerusalem. This is a little harder to see, but in Exodus chapter 29 and verses 38 through 39, you remember the Lord commanded His people saying, now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day. Here's the daily sacrifices, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight or in the evening. But whereas the people of Judah were double-minded, neglecting to offer acceptable morning and evening sacrifices to the Lord, the Babylonians will show no such weakness in their quest for Jerusalem's destruction. They will plan Jerusalem's destruction religiously in the morning, saying, prepare war against her, arise and let us go back. Or pardon me, arise and let us attack at noon. And when the morning plans are either executed to some degree and not completely fulfilled, when they take a break in the, in, the, in the afternoon, or perhaps when they have attempted to take Jerusalem but haven't yet taken it, when the morning plans perhaps fail, they will lament, saying, Woe to us, for the day declines, for the shadows of evening lengthen. But will they give up? No. Instead, they will simply plan another attack in the evening, saying, Arise and let us attack by night and destroy her palaces. And so what's the point? The point is this, sin will not sleep. Evil does not sleep. It does not, it does not slumber. Sin is absolutely committed to your destruction. Offering, as it were, its own kind of morning and evening sacrifices as it plots your destruction religiously. In a, in a way, sin is far more faithful to its cause than you or I will ever be. Which is why we need the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, God is far more committed to your sanctification than you could ever be. And that should be a great comfort to you. The Lord Jesus is the only man who has ever lived upon this earth who was stronger than sin, more faithful than sin in its cause. And of course, his strength and his cause was your redemption, the redemption of all who would believe in him. He defeated sin. He defeated evil once for all in his obedience unto death and resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 6. The text continues, for thus says the Lord of hosts, cut down her trees, cast up a siege mound against Jerusalem. This is the city that must be punished. There is nothing but oppression within her. As a well keeps its water fresh, so she keeps fresh her evil. Violence and destruction are heard within her. Sickness and wounds are ever before me. Be warned, O Jerusalem, lest I turn from you in disgust, lest I make you a desolation an uninhabited land. The Lord makes clear that the destruction of Jerusalem will come from His own hand. The Babylonians will be His unwilling servants. And notice why He says He will destroy her. He says there is nothing but oppression within her. Now one might think 
from the inside looking out that the Babylonians were the oppressors. But the Lord says, actually, no. Actually, my own people have become the oppressors. He spoke of this previously in chapter 5 and verse 28, as we saw last week saying this, they have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. The daughter, the daughter of Jerusalem, the one that the Lord bred, as he says in in chapter 6, lovely and delicately, She has corrupted herself. She is now full of sickness, full of wounds. He describes her in verses 7 through 8 saying, As a well keeps its water fresh, so she keeps fresh her evil. Violence and destruction are heard within her, sickness and wounds ever before me. Be warned. O Jerusalem, lest I turn from you in disgust, lest I make you a desolation, an uninhabited land. The analogy of the well or the bubbling spring here is a powerful one. How do bubbling springs stay fresh and therefore life-giving? Do they require work? Well, no, that's just their nature. It's just what they do. And the same is true for the person who remains dominated by indwelling sin. Their evil stays fresh within them, but it's anything but fresh and life-giving actually. Instead, it is violence and destruction. It is sickness and wounds under the wrath and curse of God, the one who is the source of all life. And so the Lord warns Judah that if she continues in this condition, if she continues corrupting herself, wounding herself, seeking to destroy herself by her own sin, if she continues apart from His saving grace, He will eventually, He will eventually turn from her altogether in disgust and make her a desolation. Look at verse 9. The text says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, They shall glean thoroughly as a vine the remnant of Israel like a grape gatherer, pass your hand again over its branches. Now, as we've, as we've seen on many occasions in Jeremiah's prophecy thus far, and as we'll see as we move forward, particularly in, in the, the 31st through the 33rd chapter, or 34th chapters, pardon me, the book of hope, in the midst of the Lord's judgment, in the midst of harsh judgment, the Lord remembers mercy. Because Jerusalem is filled with oppression, with those who do not defend the rights of the needy, one of which, if you remember, was the right to glean from the vineyards. And very practically what that means when the Lord says you don't defend the rights of the needy is they've become fat and sleek. Why? Because they strip their vines of all the grapes. They don't leave any for the needy because they're greedy for unjust gain. And so the Lord now promises that the Babylonians... He will send the Babylonians in to Jerusalem to glean thoroughly as a vine the remnant of Israel. Now, there's either two ways to take this. 
can either see this as another prophecy of destruction. They will glean the vines in the sense of destroying Jerusalem. But I think there's something else happening here. I think what he means by remnant of Israel is that he will protect the faithful. He will protect that small remnant that remains faithful to him by permitting the Babylonians to gather them up like grapes as they enslave them and then exile them into Babylon where they'll remain for 70 years before their restoration to the land. Now, nonetheless, the Lord asks a rhetorical question, though He remembers His mercy, I would say, in in verse 9. He asks a rhetorical question in verse 10, saying, to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? He's just said, be warned, O Israel, but now He asks the question, to whom shall I speak? and give warning that they may hear. And he answers his own question, saying, Behold, their ears are circumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. And so here's the heart of the problem with Judah, beloved. Because the citizens of Judah remain by and large totally depraved. In the estate of sin and misery... They remain plagued by moral inability. They cannot listen, God says. As he previously said in chapter 5 and verse 21, they are foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. And as he now says, they have uncircumcised ears. Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 4 and verse 11 that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith. In other words, circumcision is an invisible picture, or pardon me, a visible picture of an invisible cleansing, the washing of regeneration, like baptism in the new covenant. And so what the Lord means when He describes the people of Jerusalem as having uncircumcised ears is that they have not yet been cleansed of their sins through faith in Christ, the Christ to come. And that's why the Word of God is an object of scorn to them. They hate God's Word and take no pleasure in it because they hate God and take no pleasure in Him. So, beloved, take heart. If you have a genuine love for God's Word, then you have ample evidence that you belong to Him. It's not possible to actually love God and to hate His Word. So, if there is a a deep abiding love for God's Word in your heart, where you find yourself regularly returning to it, primarily in public worship in moments like this, but also in your day-to-day life as you meditate upon Scripture and go to God's Word to learn more and more of Him, to read more and more of Him, to receive more and more His discipline, His care, His love for your soul, then you have ample evidence that you belong to Him. Those who love God and are called according to His purpose Think here of the way Paul describes the believer in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Those who are marked by those attributes also love his word. 
They want to hear it read and preached. They want to, to read it for themselves and understand it for themselves. And so I ask you this morning, do you love God's Word? Or is it more of an object of scorn for you? Or perhaps, perhaps it's not an object of scorn. Perhaps you don't, you don't hear it and go, oh, I just hate it. But perhaps you hear it and you go, who cares? You're just apathetic. Who cares? It's just an old book. What does it really matter? If that describes you this morning, I call upon you to repent. Look to Christ. Turn to Him. Flee to Him for mercy. If you love God's Word, and I pray you do, then the Word of God has become food and refreshment for your soul, and you will treasure it as such. The people of Jerusalem did not treasure God's Word, but they turned away from it to their own destruction. Look at verses 11 through 12. The prophet continues. This is the Lord speaking to His people. Therefore, I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. Pour it out upon the children in the street and upon the gatherings of young men also. Both husband and wife shall be taken, the elderly and the very aged. Their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. So the Lord now speaks of His wrath against His people's sin. He's been patient for a time. For a long time, for hundreds of years, he has been patient with them, but his patience is about to expire. He will pour out his wrath upon every one of them, taking their lives through the Babylonians. And notice, notice the language of taking their beloved. Don't miss that. He says, both husband and wife shall be taken now, in Matthew chapter 24 and verses 40 through 41, the Lord Jesus teaches about His second coming, saying, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Now, our dispensational brothers and sisters believe that when Jesus says, one will be taken and one left that the one taken is the one raptured because he was the believer, and the one left is the one who remains on earth under the judgment of God during the Great Tribulation. But it's actually more likely that the reverse is the case. It's more likely that Jesus is using the same phrasing as Jeremiah as he gives his teaching in Matthew 24, so that the one taken is taken in the final judgment. And the one left is the one who escapes that judgment through faith in him. Look at verses 13 through 15. The text says, For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. For from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed, not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. So the sin of Judah and Jerusalem was all pervasive. From the least to the greatest, all were greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone dealt falsely. 
And as a case in point, the prophets and priests who ought to have been healing the wounds of God's people, which he just described in previous verses, they ought to have been healing those wounds by pronouncing his judgment and calling the people to repentance. Instead, they lied to God's people, preaching peace when there was no peace, saying everything's okay. It's okay if we worship other gods in the temple. It's okay if you go out to the high place. As long as you keep bringing your sacrifices to the temple, it's okay. And when they committed their abominations, when they worshiped idols within the temple of the Lord, they didn't even know that they ought to be ashamed. In other words, they were hard-hearted, utterly rebellious, and thus the Lord promises to destroy them and to overthrow them when he destroys the city. They won't make it out alive. They won't continue to rule over his people. And we find here a kind of looking forward, although it's not explicit in the text, to the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the glories of the new covenant, beloved. We have a king set over us unlike any king that ever served during the old covenant. In the old covenant, those kings even if they were converted, which many of them weren't, even if they were converted, were still indwelled by sin and therefore made horrible decisions, sinful decisions that adversely affected those that they were supposed to to serve as kings, as prophets, as priests. But the Lord Jesus is the final prophet, priest, and king, and he has been perfected forever in his resurrection glory so that the church on earth need never fear that they might have a wicked king ruling over them. Look at verses 16 through 26. We get to the second section. The Lord calls to repentance. The text says... Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words, and as for my law, they have rejected it. So once again, we see the kindness of the Lord, beloved. We see the kindness of the Lord. Though he will judge Judah for her sin, yet he still holds out the possibility of forgiveness through repentance. And we have to remember, the prophecy that Jeremiah is delivering at this time is still nearly 40 years before its fulfillment. He calls upon Judah, he calls upon Jerusalem to ask for the ancient paths by which he means his word. His word, what he has prescribed in his word for their good, that they might be forgiven their sins through the grace of repentance, that they might trust in the good news of the Messiah to come, that they might follow after him faithfully. Worship him acceptably. He describes this as the good way. And he calls Judah to turn from the path that they're on, which only leads to destruction, that they might walk in the good way, in the ancient paths, and find rest for their souls. 
Now, last time, last time we noted how Jeremiah used the language of Judah bursting the Lord's bonds and removing his yoke from their necks as a picture of their enslavement to sin. And so we talked about enslaving enslavement and freeing enslavement. And we noted how there's a connection there to what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 11 and verses 28 through 30 when he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And listen, he says, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we now see even more evidence that the Lord Jesus likely in that moment has this passage from Jeremiah in mind as he gives that teaching, since he not only speaks of the yoke that that those who believe in him ought to take upon themselves, but he also repeats the phrase, rest for your souls, that you might find rest for your souls. But tragically, Judah refuses to listen to the Lord, and though he sends them prophets to warn them, like Jeremiah, they refuse to pay attention to them. And so because Judah will not hear The Lord calls upon the nations. Notice that. Because Judah won't hear, he says, okay, nations, congregation, that is the faithful remnant, the earth itself, hear my judgment. The judgment that he's about to pronounce upon them. He will bring the fruit of their devices down upon them since they've refused to pay attention to his words and they've rejected his law. Look at verses 20 through 23. The text says, What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba or sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. Why? Because the Lord wants their hearts. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will lay before this people stumbling blocks against which they shall stumble. Fathers and sons together, neighbor and friend shall perish. Thus says the Lord, Behold, a people is coming from the north. A great nation is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. They lay hold on bow and javelin. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring sea. They ride on horses, set in array as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Zion. So the Lord now describes in vivid detail the awesome power of the Babylonian army that he will use as a stumbling block to destroy Jerusalem. And so the people of Jerusalem respond in terror and in anguish in verses 24 through 26, saying, we have heard the report of it. Our hands fall helpless. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain is of a woman in labor. Go not out into the field, nor walk on the road, for the enemy has a sword. Terror is on every side. O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentation, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. But notice, notice, even as they call out in anguish, even as they lament their situation, notice their focus. They experience deep sorrow, but it's only a worldly sorrow that leads to death rather than a godly sorrow 
that leads to repentance in life. In other words, they don't mourn the fact that they've sinned against their God. That's not their focus. They merely mourn the fact that they've lost their comfort. They've lost their position. Look at verses 27 through 30. We reach the third and final section where the Lord tests His people. The text says, I have made you a tester of metals among my people that you may know and test their ways. They are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They are bronze and iron. All of them act corruptly. Bellows, the bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on, for the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver they they are called, for the Lord has rejected them. So having warned His people against their sin and having encouraged them towards repentance, the Lord now speaks directly to His prophet. He speaks directly to Jeremiah, declaring that He has made him a tester of metals among His people. In other words, the Lord will use The word he delivers through Jeremiah as a means by which he will test or refine his people like the refining of precious metal. In that refining process, as you think about the way it was conducted in the ancient world, and it may be conducted this way today, I'm not sure. In that refining process, lead was added to the molten metal. And then the bellows were turned on to the mixture of lead with the other metals to cool it down. And in the cooling process, the impurities within the metal mixture would cling to the lead and thus refine the precious metal so that what you had left was just the precious metal. The Lord describes Jeremiah's preaching according to that refining process, but He says, in vain the refining goes on, for the wicked are not removed. And why? Again, this goes back to what the Lord commanded Jeremiah to do in the previous chapter. Run to and fro through the streets to find one man who does justly. He couldn't find him. There's no precious metal there, you see. And so he calls them rejected silver, since he has rejected them. They are like fool's gold. They they look, in some ways, the way they ought to. They look like gold. But when the Lord puts them through the refining fire of the preaching of His Word, the hypocrisy of their faith is exposed. And so we see... Beloved, we see part of the way the Word of God always achieves its purpose. It always achieves its purpose in at least one of two ways. It either refines, it either refines by drawing the elect to faith in Christ, and therefore it, it, it shows the genuineness of their faith as they, as they are attentive to God's Word, as they love God's Word, as they seek to believe God's Word and obey God's Word. Or it exposes the sinner in his sin such that the sin is drawn to the surface, exposed for what it really is, And therefore, the wrath of God against it is vindicated. 
There's nothing hidden. There's nothing hidden that won't be exposed. In the case of Judah in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah's preaching, for the most part, did the latter. It exposed the sin of Judah and thus vindicated the judgment that God was bringing down upon Judah. And here is the self-destructive nature of sin, beloved. God comes to Judah and says, your sin is destroying you. Turn from it, turn to me. I am merciful, I'm ready to receive you. And Judah says, no, I love my sin. Sin is giving me life and health. I prize my sin. And therefore, therefore, his judgment, which he pronounces upon them, becomes the very means by which it's vindicated. You see? As you hear the word of God, beloved, you're in a dangerous place. You're in a dangerous place. Because if you turn from it, then you have to ask yourself, am am I even saved? Is my faith really genuine? Or am I like that slag that'll be knocked off in the end under the judgment of God, you see? But it's not just a dangerous place, it's also a place of comfort and rest for those who have been given ears to hear, for those who have had their ears circumcised by the Spirit, their hearts softened to God's Word, so they flee to the mercy of God in Christ. And so I call you this morning, flee to the mercy of God in Christ. Don't perish under His judgment. But turn to Him and live. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is a refiner's fire for us. We thank You for the way that You test the hearts of Your people. That You might strengthen and show the genuineness of the faith of Your people. Even as You discipline them and build them up in the faith. We thank You for this. We thank you for the finished work of Christ on our behalf, the one who's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And Father, we pray that you would guard us, guard our covenant children from having hearts of stubborn stubborn rebellion and uncircumcised ears before you. Grant that we might not turn away from you and, and treat your word as an object of scorn, that we might not reject your word but that we would receive it with meekness and humility and find comfort and rest in it. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.